Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Romans. Our time this morning we spend in Romans chapter 10, perhaps a familiar passage to many of you this morning, one I believe is entirely appropriate for us to turn to as we end our series on the gospel. Before we look into God's word, I want us to pray this prayer of salvation of souls for or for the salvation of souls by Joseph Aline, a Puritan pastor. I shared this with you. Many of you saw this on our Facebook members page on Thursday, and hopefully you've considered this and thought through it and prayed it. Hear this prayer from Pastor Aline. Let's pray. Father, for those who do not know yet, Lord, grab on to them now and do your work. Take them by the heart. Overcome them and persuade them until they say, you have won, you are stronger than I. Lord, did you not make us fishers of men? We have worked all this time and caught nothing. Have we spent our strength for nothing? We will cast our net one more time, Lord Jesus. Stand on the shore and show us how and where to spread our net. Or give us the words to enclose the souls we seek, that they will have no way out. Now, Lord, for a multitude of souls, we ask now, Lord, for a full portion. Lord God, remember us. We pray. Strengthen us, O God. Use us. And Father, use your word in this hour, in this moment, to equip us, to instruct us, to embolden us for the sake of the gospel. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that this is the end of a six-part series on the gospel. We began by looking at what the gospel is in general, and we talked about the fact that, that it was God's good news. And for that sermon, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, the first four to five verses there, and considered what it was that was of paramount importance, foundational, primary importance to Paul. And of primary importance to Paul was the gospel. The good news of God, the good news from God. And then we broke that good news down into four key words, four key themes that we need to know and understand about the gospel message. We looked at those four words each on a different Sunday. The key words or key themes of the gospel message or the gospel framework or God, man, Jesus, and response. It's the good news that the holy God who is eternally existent, who created all things for his glory, and reigns over all of creation as Lord. He is holy and he is just and he created man in his image to have a relationship with him, fellowship with him, communion with him, but man disobeyed and rebelled against God. He sinned. And the consequence of that sin, the consequence of that sin was separation, punishment, death. Man from that time on is both born a sinner and chooses to sin. And there's no way that we as men can get rid of the punishment that we deserve. We can't save ourselves. We can't merit salvation. We can't become holy because we are not holy. But God knew this. And God, from before the foundation of the earth, planned to send his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a sinless life and to die in our place as a substitute for us, paying the price of sin to redeem us from the curse of the law. He did that. He died. Three days later, he rose from the grave, victorious over death, paying in full the penalty of sin. And he has promised that everyone who calls on his name, everyone who repents and believes, will have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So the good news is that you're saved not by what you do, but you're saved by what Christ has done by repenting. We talked last week the response that's called for from us is to 
repent, to turn from our sins, and to trust in Christ. It's the gospel message. It's simple. It's important. And so where it leaves us today is a potentially dangerous position. A dangerous position for those who are lost, those of you who are unbelievers, in which you would know the gospel, but you would not believe the gospel. That you would leave and depart knowing something that could save you, but not trusting in what does save you. But as believers, it leaves us in a dangerous position as well. That we would be those who not only know the gospel and have trusted Christ in responding to the gospel, but we would just leave in that state and never share the gospel. That we would never have a burden to proclaim the good news to others. That we might be tempted to be satisfied with our own salvation while failing to call others to salvation. That we would be satisfied with knowing good news while others are ignorant of it. And we pass them by day in and day out. And every facet of our life, this would be unacceptable. This would be something we wouldn't dream of. It would be unfathomable to, to know that there is a, a poison in a cup and, and to not to drink it and to have that knowledge that if I drink from that, I will die. And then just to watch other people walk up and to drink from that cup. We would never do that. It would be unfathomable to be in a hotel and the hotel is caught on fire and it's burning and you just run out without telling anyone, without yelling, without knocking on doors. I don't think anyone in here would do that. It's unfathomable. And so it must be unfathomable for us as believers to do the same. The, the, the gist of our message, the rest of our message is really intended for those of us who sit here today who are believers. Unbelievers, you've heard the gospel. You, you heard a, a gospel summary a few moments ago, and, and I would just say the same thing that we've said over the last five weeks. We would call you and beg you and plead of you to turn from your sins and turn in faith to Christ. Trust Christ as Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead. And know the salvation that the scriptures proclaim. Know the hope that is in Christ, the living hope that you're saved unto, the peace that you're given with God and from God. We'd beg of you to do that. We'd plead of you to do that today. But we need to consider the weightiness of Romans 10 this morning as believers. And when I say weightiness, I just want to confess to you that this has been a hard week. It's been a hard week, a hard week of study, sitting and looking at a passage that forces me to look in the mirror. God's Word always does that. It should always examine our hearts. We seek and we study it and we come here and and I hope and my prayer as a preacher is that I never stand in this pulpit not having just spent time mulling over God's Word. And that God's Word would never be something that I just proclaim without allowing it to stir my own soul. And I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the testimony I would share with you this week is that, that God has broken me over this passage. Again, a passage I've come to in the past and a passage that challenges me when I read it and a passage that brought me to tears this week. And so I pray that we would be burdened this morning as a church family. Not guilted, not something that we leave just feeling guilty because the preacher made us feel guilty. Not any kind of manipulation over your emotions. But that we would come humbly before the word of God. And we would see the importance and the calling, the blessing upon our lives to make the gospel known. My prayer is that God would just use his word in Romans 10 to instill in us a, a, a holy zeal from him, the salvation for the lost. That we would see that it truly is an immense blessing to be able to share the good news with those who need good news. And it is a great responsibility we have to take the gospel to them. And I pray that we leave this morning, we would leave resolving to do that. That we would leave resolving to tell of our great 
Redeemer. So we want to jump into Romans 10 this morning. If you want to, you can flip back to Romans 1. I just want to catch you up. I know we haven't been in Romans in a long time, and I want you to, to remember what Paul's doing in Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 18 is the, the introduction to Romans. It's the, the first kind of, uh, the first part of it, really, 1 through 17, I'm sorry, is the, the introduction. And, and he has, a, I think, probably one of the most foundational passages and verse for the whole book. And even what we're going to get into today is verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the, the Greek also. This, this thread is going to run through the rest of Romans. As Paul just unpacks this verse. And he unpacks what it means. How, how is it that the gospel is salvation? What is the gospel? What is the power of God shown in the gospel? How does it save? Why is it just for those who believe? What about the Jew? Does the Jew not have a special right? Look at all he's done. He says it's the power of God for salvation. Not just for the Jew, though. For Jews and Gentiles. For everyone. All people. It's the salvation of God. He goes on through Romans 1 and Romans 2 to, to into really chapter 3 up to verse 23, really laying a strong case about the need of man that our sin leaves us in need of salvation from God. There is no one who can earn salvation. We are all outside of Christ, children of wrath, objects of wrath, storing up wrath from God for the day of judgment. In Romans 3, we come to the good news starting in verse 21 where he talks about the righteousness of God that is revealed through, to us, this righteousness through faith, not through obedience, not through the law. It's righteousness of God through faith to all who believe. In Romans 4, we have the great example of Abraham, who is a case in point of what it means to be saved by faith, not by works. And then we start hearing of the blessing and the beauty of salvation and reconciliation. In Romans 5, we get over to Romans 6, talking about that we are dead to sin, we are alive in Christ, we have been risen to walk in newness of life. And we've been freed from the slavery of sin, and we are now slaves of righteousness. We walk in accordance to the righteousness we've been freed to live under. We've been released from the law in chapter 7. Paul shares of his great struggle with sin as a believer in chapter 7 where the things that he longs to do, he doesn't do. The things that he doesn't want to do, he does. He's in this fight with sin, this battle with sin, and he bursts forth in praise in Romans 8 of the fact that it is in Christ that we have grace and mercy, that there's no condemnation for the person who is in Christ. Romans 8 continues as, as Paul talks about the love of, of God that we have that we, it, we cannot be separated from. He talks about the sovereignty of God, that he would work all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God's love is eternal, it's strong, it's firm, it cannot be moved, it can't be shaken, it can't be taken from us. And then we turn to Romans 9. In Romans 9 we read of the God who is sovereign over all things. He's the God who sovereignly has mercy upon who he has mercy upon. The hard chapter, but a chapter that gives us a great and a grand view of how merciful God is, how great God is, how wonderful he is. But then, coming out of the sovereignty of God, we turn to Romans 10, and we hear the blessing and the responsibility that we have to take the gospel to those who are lost. Let's start reading in Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, let's pause there for a moment. When, 
When Paul writes this in, in these first four verses, you can really flip back into chapter 9, verse 1 to 4. He, he's presented the gospel so clearly. He gets into 9, verse 1 through 4, and he, he shares this burden that he has. He says, I wish, in, in verse 3, 9, 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He longs to see his fellow Jews saved. So here in 10, where he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. A lot of people say, well, he's talking about Jews. But there's a lot of other people who would say, well, no, he goes in to talk about Jews and Gentiles. And here he's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. I think in the context leading into the rest of the chapter and coming out of chapter 9, it's pretty clear that he's, he, is, he does have a special burden for the Jews. But it certainly applies and looks forward to Gentiles as well. The whole of Paul's writing in Romans includes the Jew and the Gentile, all people. That salvation is available for all. And so he writes here, and he longs, he says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is that they may be saved. And he looks out and he says that they have a zeal for God. He sees and he sees people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, he sees a great zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. They have a a passion, they're religious, but it's lacking in knowledge. They're seeking to establish a righteousness on their own. And I would say that the context Paul's writing here is very similar to the context we live in today. That if you look across society, we would see a society that even those many would claim that I'm not religious, I don't worship God, I'm an atheist, or whatever it might be, they're still quite religious. They are still submitting to whatever it is they lift high to serve and to submit themselves to. We live under, in a condition, in a state, in a place where the Bible belt, where there are many who are zealous, but it's not according to a true knowledge of the gospel. They're still trying to establish righteousness on their own by what they do or what they've done, who they are, what they look like, what they attend, instead of a righteousness that is available to all who believe. Back to Romans 10 and verse 5, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, we think about what he says there in verse 5 and verse 6, the righteousness based on faith. This is referencing back to chapter 3, verse 21 to 25, particularly verse 22, where we read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God that is revealed from heaven is a righteousness based on faith. Righteousness based on faith. We look and we see here again the importance of belief. We're reminded of what we looked at last week. The call of Christ in, in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that we are to repent and believe in Christ. What is that belief? What is saving faith? It is a penitent faith, a penitent belief, trust in Christ. It is belief that brings salvation, faith that brings salvation. And then we come to our text today in Romans 10, 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I want you to see first off the connection between 13 and 14. 13, we have this, this great promise, a, a promise we love to remember, a promise we love to discuss, a promise we love to proclaim that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we can't see verse 13 and read verse 13 and claim verse 13 in neglect of what comes in 14 through 17. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But in verse 14, he says, how then are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? How's that going to happen? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on someone they know nothing of? How are they going to believe in one they've not heard of? Believers, verse 14 to 17 is a clear message from our Lord that we bear the responsibility to share the gospel. We bear that responsibility. So if you're sitting in here today and you are a follower of Christ, then all of us, I stand with you in this, we bear the responsibility of sharing the gospel, of proclaiming the good news. It's the reminder that, that in all the ways that God could have chosen or ordained to bring people to faith in him, that he ordained as a primary means of salvation the pronouncement of the gospel through his people. He's pronounced us as the, the primary means of relaying the gospel message that we are to proclaim and to tell people of Christ. That's why, it's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.10, it's why he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We love that. What a beautiful description of who we are in Christ. But he follows it up by saying, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter says, this is who you are, but that's not who you are, so you just sit back fat and happy about you've been saved. No, this is who you are, and it's who you are so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That means that we need to reject this unbiblical idea that evangelism is just for pastors, it's just for missionaries, it's just for preachers, it's just for evangelists. No, we are all given the responsibility to share the gospel. It means we need to reject this unbiblical idea that we don't know enough to share the gospel. If you know enough to be saved by the gospel, you know enough to tell the gospel. Like, get that out of your head. If, if you think, well, I don't know enough to tell someone about Christ. I don't know enough to share someone and to lead them to faith in Christ. No. No, if you're a believer, if you've been saved and you do know enough, the gospel message is simple. The gospel message is clear. It also means we, we need to get rid of this unbiblical idea that, that, well, God is sovereign, and because God's sovereign, he doesn't need us, or he'll just take care of it. If that's something you struggle with and wrestle with, you need to get that out of there too. Because, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is mighty. Yes, God calls. It's clear in Scripture that does not negate our responsibility to share the gospel. That's why we have a beautiful picture of Romans 9 followed by Romans 10. Romans 9 elevates and exalts the, the sovereignty and the might of God. And then in Romans 10, we have the responsibility of the believer to evangelize and to share the gospel. So we can't say, oh, God's sovereign, we don't do evangelism. No, that's unbiblical. We say God's sovereign, and so it blesses us with the confidence to do evangelism. Because we are going with the one who says, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. That's the God of Romans 9 telling us to do Romans 10. We get rid of that. The believer who says evangelism is not my responsibility is the one who has chosen ignorance of Scripture. 
We are called to share the gospel. And the question, the question that I think just pierces is in light of 14 and 17, do I share Paul's concern and burden in Romans 9, 1 through 5 and 10, 1 through 4? Do, do, I, do I share and he say, I, speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Can we say that? Do we feel the weight of that burden? Can we say, brothers, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. I, I don't want them just to think like me. I don't want them just to get their yard looking nice so my yard looks better. I want to be saved. Do we share that burden? Do we share that desire? Do we want our neighbors, do we want our friends, do we want our family members to come to faith in Christ? Is that our heart's desire? Do we, do we really want them to call on the name of the Lord? If we long for them to do that, then they've got to, they can only call on the one that they believe in. And they can only believe in the one they've heard about. And they can only hear about him if we tell them about him. Let's look at a few points here. The first thing that we need to see is in verse 14 and 15, what you might call the chain of evangelism, what I just mentioned there. The chain of evangelism. It is for questions that Paul answers. Both, all of them begin with how. And if you kind of trace backwards, if you get down into uh, 15, the first part of 15, 15a, and just work your way backwards, what you see is, is evangelism happens when we are sent, when someone sends for preaching, and those who preach, preach so that those would hear, and those who hear, believe, and those who believe, call on the Lord. So we have this chain of sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. That's the chain. And what Paul does is he, he backs up. He starts with calling in verse 13 and goes 14 and 15. We go in calling, believing, hearing, preaching, sending to help us see that there are things that requ are required. And I think sometimes we're totally content and we kind of fall into this, this kind of place and this lazy. And I say we here. We fall into this place where we just want them to call on Christ and believe in Christ. And then that's it. We just leave it there. We leave it there. And we forget that in order for them to believe and call on Christ, they have to hear because someone tells them. So we have this chain, sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling, sending. What of sending? Well, it's pretty basic here. We've been sent. We've been sent. Jesus has sent us. We have been sent. We have what's called the Great Commission, what we know of in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. We have turned that, the Great Commission, where, where Christ has sent us, he's commissioned us as the church to go and to tell people to make disciples. We're to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We have been sent. Each of the Gospels speak of this. In the end of Luke, we hear that, that repentance will be proclaimed among all the nations. In the end of John, John uh, 20, I believe it's verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We have this commissioning at the end of Christ's ministry of Christ's people, his followers being sent out to tell of the gospel. And he speaks of preaching. Preaching is the ultimate task for which we are sent. And we hear preaching here. This is not talking narrowly about the discipline, about what's happening right now. It's not talking narrowly of the moment that one stands in the pulpit and preaches to a crowd. This is simply the proclamation, the sharing, the announcement, the heralding of good news. 
It's what we see throughout the New Testament, that God's people simply tell of God's salvation. That's just what we do. It's our DNA. It's, it's, it's what we want to tell others about. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul rejoiced and thanked God for the fact that the word of the Lord sounded forth from the Thessalonian believers. That's what he was thankful for, that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. They were announcing it. They were proclaiming it. What do we see of the believers in Acts? Well, what, do we, what is the testimony of Acts? What do we see them doing? We see them time and time again sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news. So just before Stephen is stoned, just before that, what is he doing? He's announcing the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel. A man full of wisdom and the, the spirit, one who we would say is probably one of the first deacons set aside for deacon ministry. And what characterizes him? He's proclaiming, he's telling the truth, he's telling the good news in Acts 7. And then we go just a few chapters over him. Philip, another one, he's not, a, not an apostle, he's not out in, in just a preacher. He's a believer, he's a deacon. What's he doing? He's preaching, he's telling, he's proclaiming, he's sharing the good news, he's heralding the good news. Who does he share with? He shares with the Ethiopian eunuch. He sees him opened up to Isaiah and he says, let me explain that to you. Let me tell you about that. And the eunuch comes to faith in Christ. Why? Because Philip is faithful to tell. What about Barnabas? Barnabas, another just ordinary, average Joe, just like us. And what does he do? He goes on mission trips with Paul. He partners with Paul. At one point, he even splits and goes a different way, and he continues to faithfully minister to the Lord, telling people about Christ. Acts eleven twenty four describes Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and then it goes on to tell how he led many people to the Lord. Barnabas is just telling people about Christ. He's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's a herald, he's an ambassador. The next segment of that chain is hearing is hearing this is important for us to consider because it means that the gospel is not something that we just seek to display in our lives it's something that we proclaim with our lives the gospel should not just be seen it should be heard from us that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be seen by all means we should live in a way that displays the grace of god we should live in a way that displays the gospel but as we do, we must also proclaim the gospel. Yes, we are called to be the salt and light. But I pray that we would never be the salt and light in such a way that we fail to proclaim and tell why we are salt and light, what has made us salt and light, that we would be those who just are nice people and that people would go to hell thinking, wow, Todd is a really nice guy. What a kind person he is. And not knowing that the reason I show love to them and kindness to them is because Christ has changed my life so that I'm not the jerk that I would be outside of Christ. I know I would be an absolute jerk. I'm selfish. I'm prideful. I just think about me outside of Christ. I don't think about my neighbors. I don't want to help them. I don't want to love them. I don't want to benefit them. But Christ has changed me. And they need to know that. They need to know that. And then finally, Believing, again, note the particular object of belief there that he says, right? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? There's a particular object of belief. It's not this, just this random faith in whatever I want to have faith. Hey, you just be a person of faith. All right, great. You like faith? All right, good. I'm happy for you. Man, I got faith too. Who cares? If that faith is not in Christ, that faith is not sufficient for salvation. There's a particular message we preach. It's a message of Christ that Jesus alone can save. Jesus saves. And so we call people to call upon him, to believe in him. Listen, we can't miss how ordinary this is. Don't, don't miss what Paul lays out here. Don't miss God's plan to use ordinary people like me and you to do an ordinary thing of just telling good news so that something extraordinary might happen. That a child of wrath would become a child of God. That one bound 
and enslaved to sin might be freed by the grace of God. That one that is a stranger and an alien, without hope, without a home, would be adopted by the great and merciful King. We're ordinary people, but we bear an extraordinary message. Ordinary people that bear an extraordinary message that, by God's grace, might turn one from being bound to hell to be bound for the promised land of heaven, a new and better city. So the gospel chain, evangelism, chain and evangelism. Now look at 15b, the second part of verse 15. I just want you to see the beauty of your feet, Christian. Just see the beauty of your feet. Because the reality is, I know the voices of our day, they have a lot of opinions about you as a Christian. A lot of opinions about you as a Christian, particularly if you share the gospel. Opinions like, you're oppressive. You're trying to oppress me with your view. You're judgmental. Why are you so judgmental? Oh, you're just simple. You haven't learned enough. You don't know enough. You're just a simpleton. You're crazy. You really believe that? (laughs) You, You really believe what you say? You're just crazy. Or you have no right to tell me how to live. You have no right to say that. You have no right to tell me what to do. Or we hear, keep your thoughts to yourself. Just do your thing. Go sit in the sanctuary of Grace Baptist on Sunday morning and be quiet. Or we hear that you're just a killjoy. You just don't want us to have fun. You just don't want us to be free. You're just a cosmic killjoy. That's all God is and that's all you are. But Romans 10, 15 gives a different picture. It describes the feet of those who preach good news as beautiful. Beautiful, he says. He's he's quoting from Isaiah 52, 7 and Nahum 1, 15 where God has promised redemption to his exiled people. See, if you, if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66 is the pronouncement of God's coming salvation for the exiled people of God, that God would save. He has heard their cry, and he was going to save a redeemer. And so in Isaiah 40, verse 9, this is what you read. Go on up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Who is that God? He's the God who's mighty to save. He goes on then to tell in the coming chapters of the great salvation of the Lord. You come down to Isaiah 52 and you hear what, what Mike read to us earlier in the, in, the, in the time of hearing the word in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are those feet. The feet of the one who shares good news is to be celebrated. They're beautiful because the message is beautiful. It's beautiful. Last summer, in June, I'm sitting in the emergency room of the uh, surgery waiting center. And I had gotten a call and said, your wife's out of surgery. She had had a procedure on her, on her head, on her, on her brain. And, and they said that she's out of surgery. And I'm waiting. They said the, the surgeon's going to come down. I'm waiting on the surgeon. And listen, when he walks in and he tells me about how well the surgery went, his feet were beautiful. I love that message. Why? Because he was beautiful? No, I don't even remember what he looks like. He was half covered up, I think. No. It was beautiful because of the message he brought, the good news he brought, that surgery had gone well, my wife was doing well, she was recovering well, and I would be able to see her soon. It was good news, and his feet were beautiful. We bear good news. I think the the question that you might ask, that I ask, is if it's good news, why is it so repulsive to people? Why is it that if we bear good news, why is it that so many people just scorn it and don't like it? 
I, I would just listen, or you can flip over if you want, just a few books over, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think Paul gives us a good understanding of this. Why is it that the good news at times is so repulsive to people? In 2 Corinthians 2, in verse 14, well, while you're turning there, I'll just tell you, I'll read 12 and 13. You can hear this as you turn to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul is just sharing just kind of logistical things. This is a letter, right? A real letter written by a real person in real times to real people with real challenges and real logistical tr struggles. Verse 12, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So he's looking for Titus. Titus sitting there. So he leaves. Verse uh, 13, he says, so I took leave of them, went on to Macedonia. Now, in verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession through and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. All Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, my plans changed. I wound up going to Macedonia, but thanks be to God, it doesn't matter where we're at, what we're doing when our plans change. I thought I was going to be here, but this didn't work out. So I went here, and as we do, God always leads us in triumphal possession. He's always working in us and through us. Paul is faithful to proclaim the gospel wherever he is. And so as he goes into Macedonia, he continues, and God just continues to leading them in triumphal possession. And then verse 15, to answer the question we just asked. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Do, do, you, do you see what Paul says there? He says we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Believers and unbelievers alike, as they move on, as they move through life, proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel, it's the aroma of Christ to God, a pleasing aroma to the Almighty. A worship to Him. But He says, some from life to life and some from death to death. Some, when they hear the gospel, respond in faith, ushering forth into eternal life. Some, when they hear the gospel, reject. They're repulsed by it and continue towards death. Same in Paul's day as it is here. Some who embrace, confess Christ. I still think back on those who shared the gospel with me. And I think back with thanksgiving. An aroma of life that was spoken into my life. In verse 16, there's a gripping reality that's before us. Verse 16, we're back, sorry, we're back in Romans 10. So in verse 15, he says, how, they, how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed. The gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Quoting Isaiah 53.1. We must not fail to grasp the reality of verse 16. Church, we can't live as though everyone believes. We can't just go about our merry way and leave and have our lunch and go about our week and just come in here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as though everyone around us believes. The reality is verse 16, but not everyone has believed. And I'm ashamed to say that there are days, there are weeks that I live and I go throughout the routine of my week and I live as though everyone I encounter is saved. I need God's grace in my life. I need the leading of the Holy Spirit. I need His gracious mercy 
to nudge me and to remind me and to bring to mind passages of Scripture in my head that I would look and I would see people in the state they're in. That I would not look and just say, oh, you're a man, you're physical, but I would see the condition of their soul. That I would not walk in ignorance. I wouldn't choose to just be ignorant of the eternal state of those around me. He says, but, but not everyone has obeyed the gospel. Not everyone has obeyed. They've disobeyed the gospel. That should remind you of our study last week in, in Mark 1.15, where Jesus gives an imperative, a command, repent and believe. Those are two commands in Mark 1.15. It is a command. You repent and believe. Here's what God's done. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Now you repent and believe. Turned in. That's why he says obey the gospel. The same terminology, if, if you want to look at it later, you can see in Acts 6, 7, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, Romans 1, 5, and Romans 16, 26. In all of those passages, Paul makes that same reference. Obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. And where, where I landed this week, where God just absolutely wrecked me and broke me, was the question of do I understand the implications of this? Do we understand the implication of what Paul says here, but they have not all obeyed the gospel? Do we, do we really understand the implication? If we do, do we really believe what Scripture says about those who are lost? Do we really believe it? Not can we recite it, not can we say it, but do we really believe? Do, do we really believe John 14, 6? That Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life that outside of him there is no salvation no one's saved but by through him or by him do do we really believe matthew 25 46 that, that says that the lost will go away into eternal punishment do do we really believe john 3 36 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Do, do we really believe 1 John 5.12? That he who has Christ has life, but... He who does not have Christ does not have life. Do, do we really believe Revelation 19.15? That when Jesus returns, he will do so to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on the lost. Do we really believe Revelations 21.15? That anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Do we, do we truly believe 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9? That when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Church, do we believe this?
Or are we just playing religious games? God have mercy. God have mercy on us for our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness. We would just go about our days. God have mercy on us for neglecting and disregarding those who are perishing. God have mercy on us and, and awaken within us a zeal for the lost, a holy boldness for the gospel. God have mercy on us and fill us with the spirit that we would boldly proclaim the gospel. That we would pronounce the good news, that we would be who we are, that we would be the salt, we would be the light, we would be the ambassadors that we're called to be. God, have mercy on us. We need God's mercy. And we must not forget the truth of verse 17. We can't forget the truth. We see that reality and we're gripped with that reality. And it's easy for that reality as we read those passages to grip us and to move us to tears because I know if you're like me, you hear that and people come to mind. There's people in your life just like people in my life that come to mind and you're just burdened on them. But we can't forget the truth of verse 17. That faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We can't forget that truth. But not forgetting that truth means that we can't be those who would preach the gospel, know the gospel, teach the gospel, sing the gospel, and defend the gospel while we never share the gospel. We can't be those. May we never be that church. May we never be that church that would come and just be comfortable in in doctrinal solidarity, doctrinal integrity, and never have a burden and a longing to advance and to proclaim the good news that salvation comes to Christ and Christ alone. The beautiful truth is that salvation comes from hearing. Faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3 where he tells Timothy, he says, remember the sacred writings of scriptures that make you wise unto salvation. It's the same thing he says in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. He just, uh, Peter describes the word of God that you're saved, you're born again by a perishable seed, not imperishable, but through the living and abiding word of God. In James 1.21, James says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God uses his word, his revelation of himself to make us wise unto salvation to save us. The lost aren't saved by manicured yards and shiny cars and great cooking and nice walks with our dogs. The lost are saved when we proclaim the gospel. Is it okay to wash your car? Absolutely. Go wash it. You can wash mine while you're at it. Is it great to take care of your yard? Good. Do it. I do. Is it good to walk your dog? Absolutely. But none of that saves. It's the preach, proclaim word of Christ that leads people to salvation. The lost come to faith through the word of Christ. They come to faith because someone tells them about Christ. They come to faith because they hear the good news and we have to proclaim it, we have to tell it, we have to share it. I long for the day. I, I shared this with you two years ago. I long for the day where we just see conversion growth and we see people coming to faith in Christ all the time. Where that water is never empty of there. I long for that day where we see people coming to salvation. I long for it. I pray for it. I I want to see it. I want to see it come, and I want to see people coming to faith, and I want to see us sending people out to the nations who are proclaiming the gospel, who are sharing the gospel. But if that's going to happen, we have to be gripped by Romans 10. We have to come to the spot where we say, this is my task, this is my calling, this is the cause, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get in with that. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to preach. I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to herald. I'm going to be the ambassador that God has called me to be. That's who I am. That's what I'm going to do. If we're going to do that, we have to be about doing. We have to be about sharing. And if we're going to do that, it's not because we feel guilty one Sunday. It's not because we just try harder. It's not because we're better. We're more eloquent in what we say. 
No, if we see that happening, we see God moving in that way, it's because of his gracious power working in us as we're obedient to do what he's called us to do. You remember where we started? You remember we started in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul says this is of primary importance. This is paramount, foundational importance. There's nothing else. This is it. It's the gospel. And he gives us that explanation, that beautiful summary of the gospel. Listen to what he says. That was 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 to 4, and he goes about talking about all that Christ appeared to after his resurrection. Then listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, we'll look back up to verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Right? God's shown his grace to him. He brought him to salvation. He says, listen, God didn't bring me to salvation in vain that I would just sit around and do nothing. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But through, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He said, Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. I got after it. I started telling people about Christ. I started declaring the good news. I started proclaiming salvation in Christ, proclaiming the gospel. But it wasn't me. It was God working in me. He was wholly dependent on God. He said, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm driven and I'm going to work hard because I know what God has done in my life and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to proclaim it. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Yet not I, but Christ through me. I am going to proclaim, I'm going to sing of my Redeemer. I'm going to rejoice in his great work in my life and I'm going to preach and herald the gospel. I'm going to work hard at that. And Grace Baptist, we have been sent by our Lord. He has commissioned us to go. He's commissioned us to make disciples, whether that's here in Somerset, whether it's in Utah, whether it's in Canada, Africa, Tanzania, Australia, wherever you are. We're called to make disciples. We've been sent. We've been commissioned. So let's do it. Let's go. Let's be a people who take God's word seriously, who believe what it says and who obey what it says. Let's be those people. In just a moment, we're going to sing, we're going to sing a hymn by Philip Bliss. And it's actually, I was reading it just before we came in here, it's actually one of the last hymns that Philip Bliss wrote. They found it after his death in a trunk, in a train. Opened the trunk and this train was in there, or this hymn was in there. I will sing of my Redeemer. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy he the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer, his triumphant power I'll tell. How the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love for me. He from death to life hath brought me, Son of God, with him to be. Oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt. And made me free. This song is a song of invitation, a song of response. And what that means is it's an opportunity for you to respond. And I would encourage you to use this time to pray or to sing. And by singing, you're verbally responding that I will tell the wondrous love of Christ. I will tell of how he, on the cruel cross, he suffered from the curse has set me free. I will tell of his triumphant power and tell how the victory he gave over sin and death and hell. I will tell of his heavenly love for me. I will sing, I will sing of my Redeemer. And I will tell, I will proclaim, I will herald of his love for me. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and a merciful God.
Lord, we who are yours, who are believers, are humbled. I'm humbled in this moment, God, that you would save a wretch like me. God, I think we would all stand and we would get in an argument over who's the worst sinner if we spoke of it. And we know our own sin, but God, we rejoice in your salvation and your grace that you've shown us. God, thank you. Thank you for saving us. God, thank you for for giving us the task of heralding the good news, of telling others. God, I, I ask that, God, you would forgive us. And we confess today that, God, there are days where we just go about our way and we don't think of the eternal.